You are listening to The Music Room with Aileen Miracle. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 35 of The Music Room. I'm so excited for you to listen to today's podcast episode with Joan Littman about multicultural music. Joan was my level three teacher for the Kodai program at Capital University and I just loved being in her class. She is so wise and so engaging and just has so much knowledge and so much compassion. And as a world traveler, you'll hear in this podcast episode that she doesn't think of herself as a world traveler, but she has been to so many countries and has collected folk songs and has figured out how to use those songs in the music classroom. I'm going to read her bio here, which is very short and sweet, but just know that she has so much experience in helping music educators and teaching students. Joan Lippmann is a very seasoned music educator with a passion for traditional and international folk songs. She loves to help people broaden their repertoire of global songs. I'm so excited for you to listen to this interview with Joan, so here's the show. Hi, Joan. Thanks so much for being on the show. Elaine, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey as a music educator? Sure. Uh, maybe I would call this the unlikely journey. As a child, as many children, I took piano, um, of course. I sang in the church choir. But I think one of my most profound experiences, besides singing with my father, who played that six guitar chords, was <laughs> going with him to hear the L.A. Philharmonic. He was, the, he was the lawyer. And we often went, just me and Daddy, and sat through many, many concerts. And I know now that that was a deep part of my music education. But I wasn't really good at piano, and I certainly didn't want to be a singer. And my choir was, experience wasn't extraordinary. So off I went to the University of the Pacific and kind of majored in history and sociology, a lot of Spanish-speaking kids. Then I transferred to the University of Georgia. I wanted to be part of the civil rights movement. At Georgia, I started joining every musical ensemble I could think of. You know, the Collegium, even a beginning wins ensemble, which I was nearly unqualified to be in. <laughs> but still, there had been no lively school experience to think, gee, maybe I should go into music camp. There was nowhere in my thinking. So when I graduated with a million units in, not a million, but many units in music and degrees in history and sociology, I just decided I would be a high school guidance counselor. Oh, wow. And yeah, and in California, you have to teach first. And I remember the lady who stuck the list of classes I could teach in front of me, and I saw girls' chorus. And I said, oh, I'll teach girls' chorus. They said, fine. They should have said, are you qualified? And then I would have said, no. <laughs> but I did it. And the same year, I started singing with this incredible conductor in L.A., Paul Solomonovich. And it was magical. It was mystical. And I said, I want to do this. That's and awesome. Within a couple of years, I had happily, luckily, providentially fallen in with some kind of people who were in the beginning of the Kodai movement. Mm-hmm. And I went to the Kodai Center of America, and there I was. This was my tribe. This gave me the skills. This gave me the joy. And then I just discovered that I really could be a choral director. And then I learned all the magical things you could do, skill-building things, joyful things you could do as a school music teacher. And from that point, I never turned back. And I think that's basically the story. That's it. As long as I've known you, I've never really asked you your story. So that was really great to hear. Thank you. Good. So what compelled you to travel the world? I know that you've traveled all over, and I would love to hear about what kind of motivated you. Okay. Well, 
I had to think about this one a lot. <laughs> because truthfully, I don't ever define myself as a world traveler. I have never been to Italy. I have never been to France. I was in London for about an hour and a half. Uh-huh. But obviously, in the last 30 years, without thinking about doing this, I've been very privileged to travel to some faraway places and lesser known places like Egypt and Syria and Iran and Nicaragua and Argentina. So the music interest almost always fueled where I go. And that is followed immediately by a real thirst to know the people and the culture who end up sharing their music with me. But going back to the idea of being compelled, I think I know where that came from. It really started when I was a teenager in Southern California. There were classmates of mine. We lived right by the beach. And my classmates were a little bit different culturally. Mm -hmm. Different church, synagogue, different family vacation spots. But basically, we were pretty much alike. And I landed a volunteer job, which had me for three years going across Los Angeles on a bus. You know, and L.A. has terrible mass transit. It really had terrible mass transit in the 60s. But... On this bus ride, you know, for two hours each way, every Saturday, we went through an old established Jewish neighborhood and an emerging Koreatown, a Hungarian residential area. Oh, wow. Um, And I realized, using the language I'm using now, that I was so drawn to these neighborhoods and I didn't know any of these people and I wished I did know these people. Mm -hmm. So I would say that riding the bus across Los Angeles compelled me to travel. Wow, that's so cool. As you have traveled, what realizations have you had about music education? Well, the first thing is that school music education in most of the places I've traveled just does not exist Hmm. in the same way that we know it here in the United States. Students learn to sing or dance or play instruments in the context of an extended family or small ensemble. I've had more than one person say, for instance, this Arabic drummer that I worked with in Argentina who said, oh, I learned all these patterns on the kitchen table from my grandmother, mm-hmm. you know, or I learned these songs from my grandparents. So oral tradition, uh, family context, some of the lucky students might have gone to a community music school. They certainly exist all over the place. Some might have been in church choirs or children's choirs, but those are the exceptions in the places I've been. So no school music is the big difference. That's interesting. How do you think that you have changed your teaching as a result of what you have seen and what you've learned? Okay. Now, at the risk of getting philosophical, (laughs) we know, we all know, those of us in music are so aware that music has the potential to raise curiosity and a longing to know other cultures. This has been the experience in my life, and it's an interest and a longing that I certainly want to pass on. I always have music representative of other cultures in my curriculum and in my choral repertoire. And as I look back, even as an absolute rock beginning Mm -hmm. choral conductor, we did Mexican folk songs. Mm -hmm. You know, I had learned them and we did them. It just was kind of instinctive to me. What do you think you've changed as a result of what you've learned? I think I'm much freer. Uh I know, especially in the Middle East, I am much freer and more confident in teaching by ear. Okay. And knowing that does not contradict my passion for teaching literacy, but there's music that just does not fit into what they call the cage of Western notation. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And we need to listen carefully. And when I watch that process happening, it excites me. Another thing that excites me is the intergenerational interaction. And I've tried to bring that really kind of instinctively to my own groups whenever possible. I remember watching some Yemeni drummers. They just had the children on the stage with them, you know, and the kids could whack out a couple of very simple rhythms, but they were in the midst of this live music making. That's not unusual in the Arabic world. And I've tried to do things like that in my own teaching. I try to make the distance between the performers and the audience less. That's definitely a lesson from Latin America and the Middle East. Much more audience interaction than I would have if I hadn't had these experiences. Yeah, very cool to hear. What misconceptions do you believe people have about music of other cultures and about teaching multicultural music in general? Okay, I'm going to roll all these topics into one. Okay. Because I'm going to sort them out if it's too loosey-goosey. Obviously, we are in an era of enjoying incredible access to multicultural music, mm-hmm. right? So much is accessible. But I think some of the foci in approaching the music of the world, we use our old, well-honed Western methods, like we must have correct pronunciation, we mm-hmm. must have the authentic vocal technique, and the concern is that we have to sound authentic, and if we don't sound authentic, then we're going to be judged. Right. So many don't try. It's a rule, you know, and maybe the fear isn't even identified, but what a missed opportunity. I think back to... 40 years ago, in L.A., I heard the Vienna Choir Boys do one of their very Vienna Choir Boysy concerts, and they sang Oh, Susanna, and they pronounced it Oh, Susanna. Mm-hmm. And my friends and I were just kind of smirking. Uh-huh. But, but beyond the smirk, we were delighted to hear our own music. Right. We loved it. When the minute you know, one was over, nobody was really judging anybody. We do our best, and we need to know that we are not going to sound like native speakers. Authenticity is a lovely term and has a lot of validity, but we will not sound like the real thing. Nobody expects that. And I think taking the safe road and not doing new multicultural music is really sad. we got to take risks, we got to build bridges, and we got to let go. Now, if I just take a side comment for a second, going back to that thing about the comment about the Vienna Choir Boys, uh-huh. in the last 20 years, one of my biggest joys has been watching audiences hear their own music from Mm -hmm. my school groups or my choirs. They're just grateful to have their music and their culture valued to not be invisible. And this is nowhere more true than with recently arrived immigrants. So when I hear some people in Minnesota are gathering materials from Somalia to share with people in Columbus, Ohio, that's really exciting. The other misconception is just when I watch performances of some music that's not natural to the group. There is no contact. They may be given a literal translation, but clearly there's no connection that the students are having. So in a sense, it's like just reciting something in a foreign language. They're glued to the score. There's no enjoyment. There's no shifting of imagination about those people. So I think that's a misconception that we can have our kids do international or global music or multicultural music without any understanding. Those days have to be over, you know, they just have to be over. Yeah. And I think that's the big aha moment I had when you worked with my students this spring is that watching you work with them and give context to a song, it was beyond just this is what the translation, you know, of the lyrics is. 
but having the students act it out and talking to the students about the conflicts in those countries and that kind of thing, I think was really powerful. And I think that sometimes we as music educators, we fill in our curriculum with a song from Spain and a song from Canada and a song from this place and a song from that place, but we don't always give it context. So I loved that. I loved watching you work with them. And, and you know what? We're learning how to do it. And I'm learning how to do it. And I think that's one of the benefits of travel because different things leap out at you as important. And the acting out, or like we did of that little rooftop song, Curtis Band, mm-hmm. the physicalization of that secret meeting on the rooftop, that'll laugh. If I just say, oh, this is a secret meeting on the rooftop, that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I think also... Not to go off on a tangent, but something you said made me think of this. I think that sometimes we as music educators are afraid to do something because we're afraid it's not going to be authentic. But sometimes we're also afraid to do it because we're afraid of offending someone. Like, what if I'm not supposed to sing this song? Or what if there is another meaning to the song that I'm, I'm not aware of? And I somehow am going to offend someone. So then people become afraid of doing anything. That's sad. You know, it's not that we shouldn't do anything. It's that we need to be well-informed about what we're doing. And I think we're learning how to have the conversation. Yeah. And we're learning who to ask to get the best resources. And everybody doesn't have the time to do this with every single song. Right. You know, so I'm hoping somebody miraculously leaps out of somewhere and says, I'll coordinate it all. Right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What is one of your favorite songs that you've learned in your travels? Well, i got to begin by saying one of my favorite songs I learned in New York City, but then it was when I went to Iran that the context uh, leapt out at me. Mm-hmm. And there's a Persian song called Mastam Mastam, and it's a very upbeat song. I'll give you a little bit of the tune. Very upbeat, happy song. And so the context is a young couple, madly in love, and they're on a trip undoubtedly chaperoned by their parents and they're going to pledge their love to each other at some shrine which is probably two or three hours away from where they start and en route they stop for a picnic in the song the lyrics reveal that for this picnic they're going to have their red and white china teapot now those words just went right over my head when Uh i was first considering the meaning of the song the lyrics just didn't mean a thing but then my son and I went to Iran, and we would drive throughout the countryside, everywhere along the road, and this was July, we noticed so many families having picnics along the roadside in the grass. Mm-hmm. And you know what we saw? We saw picnics with a beautiful sofre, which is a gigantic, beautiful tablecloth. And we saw home-cooked food and dried fruits, mulberries mm-hmm. and figs, a china teapot, or perhaps the big, heavy samovar from which you can get the finest quality of tea. These picnics had effort invested in them. This was no McDonald's drive-through <laughs> along the side of the road. Right. Again, several generations were enjoying each other's company. It was unrushed. They had brought the beautiful tablecloth. They hauled out the china tea. This was normal. Uh-huh. And it was normal for this to be part of their picnic. And so, of course, it appeared in the lyrics. And when I've done this song, even when I did it in Columbus about 15 years ago, I, you know, I hauled all this stuff with me uh-huh. because it's kind of shocking, really. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. It wasn't even just a nice picnic basket. But I love this song. And if I sang the whole thing now, you would not 
fall in love with the song. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'll, I would. I'll give, good, <laughs> I'll give you a good, like, I've done it with children's choirs and with adults' choirs. It's a favorite. Very upbeat. Yeah, I love it. I love how you were able to witness something that really gave it more context. Oh, absolutely. And so often we hear a song and there's a lyric that we're not exactly sure what it means. So when you're able to actually figure that out in person, that's so much more powerful. I mean, I've had some really great sources for Iranian, for Persian traditional music because I, you know, I worked at the United Nations School for many years. But also I had, there was a wedding song that was knocking my head around and I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> and the people I knew didn't see what the problem was. The mm-hmm. song was started sad, and then it gets very happy. And, you know, no music teachers are going to know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- I think that's part of the problem that we, you know, of course we go to our own tribe. We go to the music teachers, and what does this mean? Uh-huh. But in fact, the breakthrough came for me when I called Princeton, and within their Department of Middle Eastern Languages, they have Persian literature. Mm-hmm. And then the literature people were the ones that understood these lyrics. Wow. You know, yeah. and I'm sure Ohio State and yeah. you know, Columbia and these colleges have these departments, and they'll, they'll help us. Right. Yeah, that's good to think about someone like that as a resource for us. Yeah, yeah. How do you think the material you've collected fits into Kodai-inspired teaching? Well, <laughs> in the early days of my training, you know, about 40 years ago, uh-huh. you know, I was a little more reserved in admitting what I did. Uh-huh. Um, but now, I would say without apology, my musical imagination has always been, quote, without borders, end uh-huh. quote. And I think tons of multicultural materials can and must be used in a Kodai-inspired classroom. The reason if you want to put Kodai's name on it, is his humanistic breath, his wanting the children of the world to inherit a peaceful, pluralistic world. And Mm -hmm. what that means in our time, in our place, is that we use music to open up curiosity and interest in other cultures so that children will be less threatened, well, curiosity and interest, and then also going to the possibility that kids may be threatened by a certain culture and we can use the music to to ease that concern. What we're learning, we have not arrived, but what we're learning is to teach these songs in a not in a sequential way. It's not picking one because it fits into my mi re do right. sequence. But what's the most accessible thing here? Is it the beat? Do I sing it six times while we pass the bean bag? Or we can draw the melody in the sky or find ways to break it down. That's what we do with all good music teaching, mm-hmm. right? But I think the days of just doing a very boxed curriculum need to be over. Yeah. yeah. They're always preach it, sister. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, in polling, this it is... Pro- and it takes rethinking. It's worth it. And it's probably it's something it. that I first heard from you, and I just love this thought of instead of pulling songs for a certain concept, pulling concepts from songs. Yeah, just a different lens looking at sequence. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking in really educating us about multicultural music. I would love for you to tell us more about where we can find you. You can find me in Jersey City, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> right off the light rail. And I know that's not what you're asking. <laughs> you know how close I am to the Statue of Liberty? <laughs> I did yeah. not know that. <laughs> no, uh, well, I am. You know, like probably a half a mile. Oh, wow. Place. But I, I, could, I walked the other block and I could see her straight on, even if it is from the back.
you know, I recently launched a website. It's called World Songs and Conversations. So my goal is every few months to get some songs that are very usable in elementary and middle school classrooms with the conversations. And that's the goal of that. And I'm about to go into a second edition. Right. And it's JoanLittman.com, correct? That's it. Yeah, it's a beautiful website and already such a great resource. So it's really exciting that you're adding more to the website. And I'm hoping people will look and I'm praying, that's serious, you know, that people will comment and not just say, oh, nice job. But, you know, Mm -hmm. did you ever think of this or why why aren't you doing, you know, I mean, I, I just love healthy interaction and criticism. Yes. Well, thank you again for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it, Joni. It was my pleasure. All right. Wasn't that such a great podcast episode? I so enjoyed having Joni on the show. Make sure to check out the show notes at mrsmiraclesmusicroom.com by clicking podcast and then episode 35 because she will have notation for the song that she mentioned in the episode as well as recordings or links to recordings. Make sure that if you haven't checked out Joan's website, that you do that by going to joanlitman.com. It is such a wonderful resource, and I'm so excited that she's put it together. I will be taking a bit of a break from the podcast because it's summer, and this weekend, my husband and I are going to Nelsonville Music Festival, and then the week after that, my whole family is headed to Yellowstone. We are so excited. So I'm going to take, I'm going to say about a month off from the podcast, and then I will be back. In the meantime, make sure that you check out the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast because they're doing a book study this summer, and I did their book study last year, and it was awesome. So make sure to look that up if you're still wanting to listen to music education podcast over the summer. And if you haven't yet, make sure that you subscribe in iTunes so that you can be notified when I do publish a new podcast episode. I will be active with a challenge this summer called the Music Escape Room Challenge, which will happen from June 24th through the 28th of this year. I know last time I published a podcast episode, I wasn't sure about the dates, but I have decided on those dates. So if you haven't signed up for that yet, make sure you do that by going to bit.ly slash music escape challenge so that you can learn some ideas for an escape room in your music classroom. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you soon.